This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at Antidote Festival in 2020. It's rare that a debut novel makes the sort of impact of Kylie Reid's book, Such a Fun Age, which has quickly become a favourite of book clubs worldwide, has been the subject of much talk and debate, and was even long-listed for the Booker Prize. But it's also rare that a novel encapsulates the big themes of our times as perfectly as this one does. In this session, Kylie is joined by journalist and television presenter Jan Fran for a discussion about privilege, class and race in a world that is never black and white. Well, welcome everyone. It's so lovely to see so many COVID safe faces here. Um, I just want to you to give yourself a round of applause, one, for actually being here in real life, and two, for braving the heat in Sydney today. Well done. Well done. Two achievements already, and lunch is not over. Congratulations. Uh, My name is Jan Fran. For those who don't know me, uh, uh, welcome to this afternoon's talk between myself and Kylie Reid, the author of the best-selling novel, Such a Fun Age, um, which I'm sure you'll agree is such a great book. Um, To let you know, before I introduce Kylie, how the session is going to run, um, also welcome to those watching at home. I I see you, I haven't forgotten you, welcome. Um, To let you know how the session is gonna run, so it's gonna be an hour. Um, I'll talk to Kylie for about 40 minutes and then we'll have an opportunity for 20 minutes of questions. Now, because we are very COVID safe here, there won't be microphones for questions. What there will be is something called Slido. So if you wanna ask a question, Just stick that into your internet browser. Um, It'll ask you for an event code, which is antidote. If you want to punch in the event code, you'll get taken to a landing page where you'll be able to ask a question, and that question will come up on my iPad. Um, So that's how questions are going to work this afternoon, rather than being um, on either side of the stage with a microphone. Well, this book is, as I'm sure most of you probably know, a story about Amira, who is a young black babysitter looking after the child of a wealthy uh, white to-do family. But of course, it's about so much more than that. It's about race and class and inequality and how they all play out in a very contemporary, very online America. Um, So that's really what we're going to be talking about here today, some of the issues, a lot of the themes, rather than, say, a focus on the plot and all the characters, even though I know we could probably spend an hour trying to work out whether Kelly is a good guy or not. I don't know. I don't know where you sit on that. I'm still very confused. Do we like him? Do we not? Who knows? Um, So it's not going to be too character and plot-based. It really is going to be a discussion about the broader issues, but of course, you guys are the ones asking questions, so feel free to throw a question in about that if you so want to. Um, Without further ado, I would love to welcome from the United States, Kylie Reid, who is going to pop up any minute now. Hey! Yeah, well, we, we have both of those things at the moment. We have um, a lot of COVID safety and we also have a lot of hot. It's currently 40 degrees Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, maybe a thousand. I don't know. <laughs> 
Look, we're all sweating in our seats, but, but we're good and we're so happy to have you here with us, um, albeit not in real life, but you know what? Near enough is good enough. So welcome to you. Um, first yeah. of all, congratulations on uh, well, I, what I think is a, is a wonderful book, a really great read. Um, and I know that the, the people I've spoken to about it think the same as well. Um, why, let's just sort of start at the, at the beginning here. Why did you decide to write this particular story? No, it all really started with my love for awkward interactions. Between the combination of three people that often shows up in fairy tales, my favorite movies, and romantic comedies, to very serious dramas, it all started with me to have a really precarious relationship between three people. And so I started with a young woman, a man who starts dating, and her boss, but I ended up with a very old story in the United States, which is a young black woman. The, child, the white child she's caring for and the white mother that she that she is with as well. And so it really started from that point. As a storyteller, I always start with characters. It's kind of like when you're picking a job, it makes a huge difference. You think the people that you're working with are very interesting people. Were these characters characters that you came across in real life that you were able then to base these characters on? They were not. You know, I was, I was a nanny I'm definitely not a mirror. This is a completely fictional story. Uh, but I was with so many children so often. And so I was very inspired by something a child would say to me or something, an interaction I would have with a mother watching that really difficult place between, you know, I'm this child's babysitter and I feel like I know her because I'm with her for 10 hours a day, but then you come home for bedtime and you're the superhero. I know that's a really tricky place for everyone to be in. And so I was really more inspired by the brands of clothing and the children's toys, and the, you know, the feeling of working in someone else's house more than a certain person. I had many mothers calling and asking, you know, is this about me? Do I need to quit my job? What did you say about me? <laughs> Yeah, uh, but none of that, none of that <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, your book has a very um, piercing way of making people feel like it is about them. I know that I read the book and sort of felt like, oh, this book is meant for me, or, or it, you know, maybe it's about the way that I live my life. So there's that kind of relatability element to it. But I guess I am curious that, did you write it for a particular person? Did you have a certain reader in mind when you wrote this book? Who is it for? That's a great question. I would say this book is for anyone who loves a plot-driven story, anyone who loves that cringe factor that almost makes you want to put a book back down. It is definitely for them. Um, there's no you know, race or age or gender that I was aiming for, but with this novel, I thought it was very important that I nail what exactly it's like to be a black domestic caregiver. I wanted black caregivers to say, yep, that's my life, and yep, that's what it feels like, and to really relate to Amira in that way. And so I write for everyone, but in this case, I really wanted to answer to domestic care workers. Mm -hmm. Because I, when I read the book, I, I, I took it as a bit of a, I guess a, a, a low-key teachable moment of, of what not to do and, and perhaps what not to say and, and how to not behave. But I know that 
you've said that you never really set out to educate people here about racism and inequality in your book. So what, what did you set out to do? Yeah, it, it might sound trite, but storytelling is really the thing for me. And the novels that have stuck with me are, are not polemic and they don't preach at me and they kind of rest on my heart and they're a little bit haunting in a way that I really carry it with me. Um, yeah, I, I feel that the story has to be first. You have to care about the people. And I never set out to educate anyone. I wasn't trying to get back at a mob who had wronged me or anything. I, you know, one of my favorite professors in graduate school said that great fiction just tells the truth. And I was really meaning to just tell the truth. It's so funny because of course, you know, I love that feeling. I love feeling like a little called out when I'm reading something. Yeah. But if there's anything that I am poking at it's these systems that leave people like Amira without healthcare. You know, I think that that is like such a scary thing to imagine, you know, someone like Alex being in charge of her healthcare. And the fact that her healthcare is tied to her job is not a problem that only affects her. So if I'm butchering anyone, it's, it's the healthcare system in the States for sure. Yeah, it's, and, and I think you, you know, you've, you've emphasised this in um, previous talks that you've given as well, the idea of actually looking at the system that allows for um, these types of people to exist in the way that they do and privileges some over others, rather than, say, individual behaviour. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just curious about some of the feedback that you might have gotten from readers. Did you, did you have people coming up to you saying, oh, I've, I've learnt so much, or how do I be a better person, or how do I not do this, or what's the feedback been? I mean, all of the above, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, I did have a woman say with tears in her eyes, like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And I think that on the surface that responses like that are innocuous and good intentions. At the same time, it, it recalls how much more work and labor is often put on black people to educate. You know, I don't, you know, when I go to a museum, I don't look at a painting saying, please teach me how to be a thing. I just don't think that that's where art, the art that I like especially should be. And so yes, all of the above, I had a lot of women feeling really guilty and wanting to talk to me about how they actually treat their nanny really wonderfully and how their nanny actually did have Thanksgiving with them and it's okay. And, you know, that's such an individual level that I just don't think it really even touches the systemic issues for most domestic caregivers, which are highly undocumented and treated like they are less than, which are mostly people of color and who mostly don't have health care. And so I understand, you know, as soon as you read something, you a very human response is to go, oh, do I do that? You know, that's just what we do. I do that all the time. Yeah. Um, but in this situation, it's such a bigger issue that I think we have to attack the big things first before we go, okay, wait, did I say the right thing? So is that what you would like your readers to take away from this book? A, a better uh, understanding of some of the systemic issues rather than perhaps the individual behaviours of the characters and characters as a reflection of ourselves? You know, the first thing, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to romanticize my role as a writer. You know, in in this book being successful, it doesn't mean that power has been redistributed to the people that it should have been redistributed for. You know what I mean? Like, um, when I read a book that I really love and I learn something, it doesn't make me a better person, unfortunately. Um, and so, first is always the story. The first thing I want is for for readers to love the story and forget where they are. I think that's like a high that I get when an art piece does that, and I really do want to give people 
people that. But of course, I think that every novel, every novel is political, whether the writer intends it to be or not. We're going to get something out of this. It's to look at these systems for sure. And maybe you wonder, you know, why can't a woman go to the doctor if she gets sick? That doesn't seem right to me. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, um, it's sort of part of a, a wider discussion around, you know, art. And, and in this particular time, I know 2020 with the Black Lives um, Matter movement and, you know, just racism being talked about a lot more openly and on these mainstream platforms like Instagram, for example. Um, there really is a discussion right. to be had around, um, you know, black art and, and black art being received or art made by black people being received by a white audience um, as a way of, of educating that audience, but I think it's really important for you, as you've said so many times, for it not necessarily to be that and, and just to be able to stand on its own. Why, why is that important to you? You know, I, I think it's a unfortunate and almost unhealthy you know, expectation to expect black artists to look at their art and say, okay, so your art must be saying something new about race. Tell me something new about race. When, when some artists just want to you know, have a rom-com or some artists want to be a philosopher. You know, I just, there's so many different things that art can bring us. And just because it's a black person delivering it doesn't mean that the re- the reader or enjoyer should leave knowing something new mm. about race. I would black artists ask the same questions that other white artists are asked as well. I remember earlier this year when I was longlisted for the Booker, which was so, so exciting. I had a lot of interviewers asking me, how does it feel to be nominated for something that was built upon by slavery and exploitation, which is such an interesting question that has, in my experience, never been asked of a white writer. I've never ever even been considered, like, how do you feel knowing that this prize was built upon the backs of, of Black people? Right. I've never seen that. And I feel that Black authors often get loaded with all of this responsibility to have a really great response to, you know, hundreds of years of exploitation. And so on an individual level, all I can do is try and, and word it the best I can and say, you know, I'm going to wait until I hear more more white writers answer that question before I do it. And when it comes to my art, it's doing exactly what you said, you know, concentrating on the reason why I started writing it in the first place, which for me is an education. I do work as a teacher. I'll be teaching at Temple University in the spring. And when I'm a teacher, that's what I'm doing. But when I'm a writer, it has to just be the book that I would love to read. Yeah. Um, on that point you make about, um, you know, white authors or white writers not necessarily being asked a question that you are being asked just by virtue of the colour of your skin, you're both doing the same thing, you're both writing a book, you're both um, artists or authors in the same way. Um, we are having conversations about race, I think, in a way that we were not previously having them. As I mentioned, they're much more mainstream. Um, and there is, to some extent, a responsibility, I think, on the part of, um, you know, white people, I use the term very generally, I know it is a very general term, um, to sort of examine, I guess, their roles in perpetuating racism and, and perpetuating that sort of um, um, systemic oppression, I suppose. And the characters in your book, Kelly and Alex, you know, they are these characters that are, they're quite well-meaning, um, but in some ways they're just unaware of the way that their privilege um, influences their behaviours and their attitudes. I know that you've talked about um, white supremacy uh, in the past, saying that it comes with unknowingness and good intentions. 
So can you talk a little bit about that and talk a little bit about the role that um, maybe people who are new to the conversation around race can be having in this time? Or, yes, I have way too much to say, yes. Right. Uh, so I think that something also that's happening this year is when cell phones are available and we're recording racism in, in real time, what happens is we get these pictures of what I like to call uh, cartoon racism, which is someone is so obviously the white villain, they're doing something like saying the N-word, they're being very vocal and bigoted, and they're also matched with a Black person who has had enough, who is very ready to go and is ready to, you know, film that, that scenario. And so on one end, that's the only form of justice that Black person might have. I would pull out my cell phone too and hopefully, you know, have a great response as well. On the other end, what happens is racism starts to look very, very large. And it's a place where a lot of white people can say, oh my gosh, I would never do that. That is over there. I am over here. I'm fine. That's racism. And the problem with these examples that you see on the news of, of such hatred and violence that often ends in death, the problem is that's what gets deemed racism. And you can't really record on a cell phone when other huge acts of racism happens and other white supremacy, you know, like notions are happening. Like when someone is getting denied a job, you can't record that. Or when someone gets turned down for an apartment or when a black woman isn't believed that she's like in pain by her yeah. doctor. And all of these things can also have really catastrophic examples of, of racism and pain and, and lessening someone's quality of life. And I also think, you know, on a very micro level, these videos often show very brave, like really well communicating black people. That is not how black people are across the board. I do not think that I would be, you know, that ready to communicate in that way if I was scared for my life. And, you know, everyone responds in a different way. And I think that loading black people with an extra responsibility of being ready with your cell phone, being that kind of person, requiring them to be someone that they may not be. And so on one hand, if that's the form of justice we need today, I completely support anyone pulling out their cell phones. If you see people pull out your cell phone. On the other hand, there are so many other catastrophic examples of, of white supremacy that lead with, oh, I just want, you know, my son to go to a good school yeah. or I just want my daughter this restaurant looks sketchy. There's all of these good intentions feeding these really big examples of white supremacy. Yeah, this is something I, I worry about a little bit too. I, I guess my concern with, you know, the, the, the videos, which is really that the tip of the iceberg that we're seeing, is that people say, right, there's this video online, it's horrible, I've responded, I've done my bit, and then that's it. It's, uh, they walk away when really it should just be, it, it should be a means to an end rather than an end in and of itself. Um, and so I fear that the discourse that we have around these moments that we see desperately on the internet might actually be hindering us in some way. And I'm curious as to what, what you think that the internet and social media has done to discourse around race. Oh man, that's such a wonderful question. And I, I think that we're learning slowly what the internet is doing. I think you know, the fact that you can watch a video of a man being killed and then scroll a little bit and see a cute animal, that's, we're going to the same place for all of our news. And I can't help but think that 
the first video is just becoming a little bit numb to us because we can just scroll it away mm-hmm. if we're not in a place really want to engage with it. Um, I remember watching the uh, documentaries of the Holocaust when I was in fourth grade, and one of the Holocaust survivors said the first time I saw a dead person, it shocked me. I couldn't sleep. The second time was a little easier, and it just kept getting easier. And so I can't help but think, you know, what exactly is the internet doing with showing these deaths um, in a way that is next to other things because that's how the mediums work. That being said, I feel like so many people would not see justice if it wasn't for the internet, mm-hmm. getting the voice out there or that they're heard. So, you know, I feel like watching in real time what the internet does to it. I have a feeling that there are going to be so many documentaries of children of influencers and on Instagram for their whole life, just ready to tell their story when they're 18. Uh, so I, the jury is still out for me on what the internet is doing. I think the internet can do a lot of really great things and spreading words, but it also I think it can cause a little harm as well. Yeah, I, I definitely think Netflix is waiting in the wings for another 15 years to commission a documentary on those children that have been online since the day of their birth, basically. But I just want to stay with this point about you know justice being sought um, by these videos that we see on the internet, because of course that was a, a major part of the story itself. Kelly is there filming Amira in um, the market, in, in the store, and saying, you know, you need to put this video online because we need to seek justice about it. Um, you know, arguably, if there hadn't been the video, the horrible video of, of George Floyd in the United States um, and some of the other videos that we were seeing at the same time, we wouldn't have seen the Black Lives Matter protests happen in the same way that we saw them happen this year. Right. Um, and really push for, you know, reformation around the police, push for justice for Breonna Taylor as well, um, who, who was another person that was, you know, shockingly killed in her own home. Um, just on the Black Lives Matter movement of this year, where do you hope it goes? And, and how do you see it best succeeding? Oh man, uh, you know, any movement towards black liberation that doesn't involve capitalism in the conversation, I'm, I'm honestly not interested in it. There are so many workers to black liberation that include the fact that you know a minimum wage is not a livable wage, the fact that education is not free, the fact that lives aren't valued and everyone can't attend the same doctors as everyone else. Those three things uh, for me, education, uh, healthcare, and, and, and housing, like if that's not attacked first, I just don't see you know how anything else can happen. Um, unfortunately, what happens a lot of the time is really big images of symbolism get pulled into these conversations. And so, you know, when the Black Lives Matter movement was happening, the streets were painting huge murals that said Black Lives Matter across the streets and bright neon paint and everyone was taking pictures and saying, this is so amazing. This is the start. And a few days later, they were painted over. <laughs> and, you know, no Black people, I don't think, are asking, we want Black Lives Matter street black that's not happening black people are saying we want a living wage that's right. what, that's what we need and there are also many many poor people in this country who are not black and so i think that it has to be about money it has to be about power and redistributing wealth in a way that really lifts the poor people up 
um, instead of just honoring the people at the top. Yeah, because your your book is very much this intersection of race and class, actually. They, they both come hand in hand. You can't talk about one without really talking about the other. And in fact, you've said in the past that talking about race without talking about class is a moot point. So can you talk us through why it's actually important to talk about both of those things at once, otherwise you're getting a half the picture or a stunted conversation? Absolutely. You know, I think that, well, as a writer, it's really study because race and class influence each other over and over again. Um, even just Alex, you know, when she sees Amira, what she's, what she's seeing is, her, her weave, which is not very expensive. She's smelling her, her perfume, which is a little bit cheap. She's seeing her leggings. She's seeing her style, which isn't like her friends. And she's categorizing her. And it's in some ways for Amir, it's holding her back just because someone believes that that's not a professional thing. So, you know, race and class and money really, really feed into each other. And a very, very common saying is, you know, not all skin folk are kin folk. There is there are elite black characters in my novel too, mm -hmm. who believe that, you know, black people should hold themselves up to a standard that is quite high. And that's just not what I believe in at all. And so I think that you have to include class and you have to include money. That is what gives people quality of life, you know, on so many levels. If you just pick one level, which is, you know, friendships, um, Alex's friendships, they are also held together by class solidarity. They all make a lot of money, they're all very stable, and that allows them to help each other in different ways that Amira could never help her friends then. You know, Alex and her friend met each other at the doctor's office. Amira could never go to that doctor's office. Alex's friend offers her a job, publishing, they have all of this social capital that is quite high and helps them move forward. So Amira and her friends, they can you know, help each other with co-checks, or I can recommend you for this internship, but what they can offer each other is not as big. And so just even in friendships, you see how much class comes into play. And of course, race comes into it as well. Amira being a low income, very dark skinned black woman has a huge effect on the people around her. Yeah. Um, this sort of leads in quite beautifully to um, the US election. I, I have to get your thoughts on Joe Biden's win. Um, oh my God, what, what is it? Just tell me everything. What, what do you think of, of, of Joe Biden beating Donald Trump and will things change um, in terms of race and class in America? Oh man, I, I think I went through a, a, a terrible path of, of panic that Trump would win and then a, a sharp depression that Biden was our best bet. Um, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> Biden, the things that I just listed I care about, you know, climate change at the top of the, of the graph there. And uh, Biden has repeatedly said over and over again that he will not end fracking. That is going to hurt a lot of poor people. That's who will be hurt by it first as we continue this, this climate crisis. I think everyone should have Medicare. Uh, Joe Biden has said over and over again that he does not believe that. You know, unfortunately, what I really care about, Joe Biden is on the other side of that. Did he get my vote 100%? But I, I, that was a sad, that was a sad, you know, a conflicting feeling. I wish that we had someone who believes that everyone deserves healthcare, unfortunately. So I don't know if things will change. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very conflicted week for me, uh, but I'm just, yeah, I'm just one person and we'll see what happens. 
Yeah, I know that you've said that you made the observation because we saw the pictures as well of you know the thousands of Americans in the streets celebrating and having a party and singing Kelly Clarkson and all the rest of that. Um, right. <laughs> you know, which is a good song and very relevant in that moment. But I agree. I agree. <laughs> I think I think the point that that you made was that it was interesting to see well which neighbourhoods were actually celebrating and when you really look at that, you know, being from Australia, we're perhaps not too nuanced on which neighbourhoods are where, but you can see the type of people in the streets that are celebrating. Um, so do you want to talk, talk a little bit about, about that kind of division of the celebration of why that is? Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, a lot of the neighbourhoods that you see on Twitter when you're scrolling through, you have to look, and it's a lot of neighbourhoods with really a lot of income coming in, and a lot of people literally saying on the internet, I'm so glad that I don't have to think about politics anymore. Those were some of the tweets that I saw that day. And it's because these people, you know, Trump, something I think happened with Trump is that his manners were so bad, the manners was what we held on to. Um, he's a very racist, terrible human being in a very, um, you know, not sophisticated way. And I think a lot of people gripped onto that. And so seeing Joe Biden come in being very sophisticated in a way that a lot of other people have been really feel really great. But I went for a long walk in Philadelphia towards neighborhoods that are not high income and the celebrating was not happening there. And I think that that's important. You know, the real celebration that I would love from this is, is those low income neighborhoods saying this is a person fight for us for us to have, you know, maybe just one job and not three and to have a living wage. That would be the celebration I would be excited about. Yeah. Um, you, the, the book is called Such a Fun Age, and I think, um, and, and jump in here if I've, if I've got it wrong, but it's, it's a characterization of, you know, it being such a fun age to be this little girl, and it's, it's often a throwaway line of, oh, it's such a fun age, this age that this kid's at right now. But it's also about the age that we live in, um, and this book is very much of a time, you know, it's set in 2015 in sort of New York, Philadelphia, or a movement between the two cities. Um, what do you see as, as being the real issues of this age that we live in now? What would you like to see being explored, um, you know, not just in America, but, but globally as well, in a place here like Australia? I think there has been a push for, for, well, this is on such a selfish level. The climate crisis is going to affect all of us. And so as an artist, I love seeing when artists, you know, involve the climate crisis in their art as well, um, because I think that you know, it's unavoidable for many poor people and that it becomes unavoidable for people who like art as well. Um, I think I can't harp on healthcare enough just because mm -hmm. I have been there. Um, I remember standing in line in the Medicare office when I was working maybe 50 hours a week and I didn't have health care. And I remember the person in front of me, his boots were strapped together with duct tape, duct tape. And I think both of us got denied and I just got in the train and I cried. And I just feel that until we can get health care for everyone and just value people's lives the same, I don't see quality of life happening for a lot of, a lot of people. But other than that, I mean, I do think this book is about ownership in a way, which I think is an interesting idea with colonization and also with the internet and who owns what. Mm. Um, I like situations books that I'm not really sure what I would do 
And if I was in the mirror, I don't know if I would trust the internet with this video of me being very angry and being a black woman, not in the type of outfit that I want to be in while I'm being angry. Um, and then once the internet has it, it's not yours anymore. And so I think privacy and ownership are very interesting things to talk about in general, but also in fiction. Yeah. Do you have a favorite character in this book? I, hate, I don't want to be so trite and say that I love all of them. Um, They're all your babies. I would say you wrote all of them. You love them are. all equally <laughs> like a good book mum. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, that is how it happens. Um, I think that my favorite character to write was probably Tamara. Um, and I think that the response that I got from Tamara on book tour was really touching. I had so many black women coming to me and saying, oh my God, this is my mom's friend, Denise. I can't stand her. Thank you for putting her in your book. And, and Tamara is the her. friend of Alex. She's the one who is, she's, she's the black friend of Alex who's in the literary world as well. Yes. That's who Tamara is, yep. She is. She's a very elite black bourgeois woman who is very poised and has a lot of experience in the work world, but she also has really high expectations of the Black people around her. And so it was very fun to put her and Amira in the same room, and she's probably my favorite character to write. Yeah. Is Alex a feminist or is she a grifter? Ooh. I, just, I, had, to, I had, to, had to ask, because I'm, I'm, this is a question I'm, I'm struggling with. Is she, is she a feminist or is she somebody that has, you know, hitched her wagon of getting free stuff into a cause that is much deeper than what she is involved with it as? I think it's a solid question. And I'm going to say she's both. <laughs> she is both. And, it, and, they, and they almost feed into each other. Because Alex is the type of feminist who's more feminist in like philosophy. And she believes that, femi you know, what I believe feminism is, is women get the same. Everyone gets the same. And for me, it makes a lot of sense if you're going to make sure that women get the same. You start at the bottom and then you push those women up and make sure everyone is getting the same. Alex's feminism is, okay, me and all of my friends up here, I want to move all of us up. Mm -hmm. together. I don't really care about anyone down there. Hey, everyone up here, I'm going to support women here. And it's so funny because I don't know if you remember earlier this year, there was this big women supporting women online, you know, uh, I don't even know what, what to call it when everyone's doing a hashtag of women supporting women. And it was almost the same thing as with the election where I can't help but notice that it's all these women who don't really need support supporting other women who also don't need support. It's all in the same, same class. And so I think Alex really in women getting what they deserve, but her focus is very much on her own class solidarity. She's also liking free stuff. But you know what? I like free doesn't. stuff sometimes too. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so I'm with you. How do we, how do we break that? Oh my gosh, that's a great question and I wish that I knew. I just don't, okay, well, I'll say this. Hashtags are not the way. <laughs> it can't be hashtags. There's too much pressure on, on a hashtag to change people and, uh, you know, keep circulating in the same places. Um, I am still very new into community organizing. I've barely done any work with the, the Domestic Workers uh, National mm -hmm. Alliance, and I think that there are people who actually are experts 
um, that I look to to say, how can we, you know, move people forward? Nina Turner is someone that I look to. I think Corey Bush is another great woman that I look to to see how we can actually support women who need it. Um, I think I'm, you know, I'm on the side of I know it's not working, which is Instagram. I'm not sure exactly what does work, but I think that it has more to do with capital and power and actual funds being put into the hands of people that need it. Yeah. Um, what is, I'm just sort of curious before we wrap up this part of the chat with you and I, um, what's been the most moving response that you've had to your book? Is there, is there somebody that sticks in your mind who's either said something to you about it, emailed you, come up to you, a moment that really stays with you about um, something your readers have said? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, being on tour was the best. There's, there's two. When I was in Savannah, Georgia, a young black woman came up to get her book signed at the table, and she came up, and I said, hi, and she just burst into tears. Aww. And I said, are you okay? And she said, of course I'm not okay. I'm black and I'm 25. I'm miserable, but I love your book. Of course I'm not okay. <laughs> and it was just, like, such a great example of uh, my, like, dream reader um, just standing right before me, and this book hit her on a lot of really great places, and so that made me feel great. Mm. Um, the other one that I was not there for, I'm so, so sad that I wasn't there for this one. My girlfriend was getting her nails done in a salon in New York City, and she said that this group of women there had all read my book, and they were talking about it, and that one of the women was saying, Alex is really trying down she is a good person another person was saying Alex is a bad person how could you say that and these two women began to argue Mm -hmm. and scream at each other and then the salon store owner said to them you need to leave or stop screaming at each other they kept screaming and on their way out one of them shoved the other one (laughs) they exited the nail salon so listen, I am not here for violence, but that is an amazing reaction to your book. Whether they liked it or not, that was a really good one. I mean, that's that's the mark of a great book, right? It moves people. You just don't know the direction that it's going to move people in and where it's going to move them. But people are very clearly moved by this stuff. Um, and it's generated, yeah. you know, so much buzz and so much conversation because... It's extremely timely, it's so relevant, um, it's so personal. I think all of us can see ourselves in some ways um, as one of the characters or perhaps we know someone who is similar to one of the characters. So I'm not surprised that there is that like small biff in a hair salon about your book. (laughs) I love it. That's fantastic. Um, We've pretty much run out of time for my chat with you, even though I have uh, a bunch more questions, luckily you guys will be able to ask questions um, via this app. So if you want to, I know I saw some of you with your phones earlier. You, Oh, that's a good start. <laughs> it's broken. Nah, okay. Nah, it's fine. Um, I've got some questions here for you, Kylie. Just so you know, we okay, can't actually see you in, in this auditorium at the moment. The oh, oh, no. Okay. The okay, line's I'll be gone really down. Glad. But you, you, you can, can you see us or can you, what can you see? I can't see you guys. It's so sad. I'm just looking at my own face. <laughs> okay. As, as lovely as it is, yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I've got a couple of, um, of questions here from the audience. We've got one from Anonymous. 
and they ask, how can white people and especially women be good allies? Oh, man. Okay. Maybe I'm glad you can't see my face. <laughs> Listen, I completely understand that question. Um, I, I've been asked it very many times on, on book tour, and I think that is, it is such a great reaction for people to read something and say, how can I be better? How can I be an ally? Um, I'm going to be so honest though, and say, I think that we are in a crisis. I am not looking for allies. I am looking for comrades who are in this fight for black people with me. You know, I think that ally implies, um, how do I say the right thing? When I look for people who I want to be near me, it's people who, you know, have zero tolerance for, for black people being mistreated, not just when they're called the N-word, but when, you know, they're an employer or when, you know, they're voting, especially or when they're hiring, all of those places. Um, I think, unfortunately, Ally has turned into this thing of, you know, how can I protect the people around me who are in my circle and not how can I protect people who need it most to, who I've never even seen before, who have very, very little power. Um, I'm a leftist. I'm looking for comrades, <laughs> for allies. You know, I also think it's part of, you know, People say to me, how can Alex be a better ally? Mm. And the problem with that is when you're a low-income black person looking for a job, you're never like, oh, how can I find, like, a really great ally who's going to be my employer? You're like, how much money is it? Let me see the kid. Okay, they're kind of cute. Okay, when is it? Okay, I can come. <laughs> you know, like, you're just looking for a job. Um, and so I think that this is going to sound, you know, regressive, but the best way – it to be, you know, for an Alex to be better to Amira, unfortunately, is not being an ally, but being a, just a good employer, paying her what she would expect to get paid herself. Um, and so I think in terms of what can white people do to be better, look at dollars and cents and help people get what you think that you think they deserve. And hopefully it's a lot. Mm. So what I'm hearing you say is that we need to overthrow capitalism. 100 percent. Okay, there you go. Person who anonymous who asks that question about being a white ally, you need to overthrow capitalism. That's where it starts. Simple. You just step one, overthrow. It's yeah. simple. I mean, look, I, I know I, we are sort of being flippant about it a little bit, but what that actually requires is a bit of a reconfiguration in the brain about actually what allyship is. Um, and it goes, from what you're saying, Kylie, as well, much deeper than just pleasantries and niceties and, you know, trying to be a, a good individual mm -hmm. and actually asking questions about, okay, what systems have allowed this person to have no access to healthcare? I think that you said it way better than I did, 100%. <laughs> it's looking at the system, yes. Great. Um, we've got a question here also from Anonymous. I will find you. Who are you? <laughs> um, regarding fun age, can you speak to Amira's age and why you decided to give her that age and should she be having fun or getting her life in order? I feel like a 25-year-old asks that question. They want to know. That's fair. That's fair. Well, I wish that we lived, you know, in a country where getting your life together was fun. <laughs> that is, that would be a lot better. Um, for, for Amira, I picked 25 because in the States, you get kicked off of your parents' health insurance when you turn 26. And so that's when, you know, you're, the difference between you 
being in debt to a hospital, if you, you know, get hit by a drunk driver or not becomes, you know, it becomes, becomes dependent on your, on your job and whatever that job is. But many jobs don't offer health insurance. I had many of them. <laughs> I was um, a camp counselor. I was a babysitter and a nanny for a long time. I worked probably 30 hours a week at a children's craft store. I had many, many jobs that don't offer health insurance. And so I had that countdown as well. Um, when I turned, I think, 22, I knew my parents were going to kick me off their health insurance as well. So I picked that age also because, I mean, Jane, I don't know about you. When I turned 25, I felt like all of my friends were going into different financial places, and that was really difficult. You know, I was excited to have friends that were engaged, and then when I realized how much money I would have to pay to, like, go to their wedding, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> this is, this is yeah. not as fun as I thought it would be. Um, I think that uh, for a lot of women in their 20s, they're at very different financial places, and it seems like they should be having more fun. Um, and so Amira is really, really caught there. I will say that I've had jobs that were really fun and I learned a lot and I had some that I've just sucked my soul out. And so I wish for Amira and for a lot of other 25-year-olds that getting their life together could be kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're Australians here and I think hearing you talk about healthcare and, and being in that age and, you know, really having to think about your job and your access to healthcare, I guess we don't, we don't have that as much because we do have universal health care, you know, we have Medicare, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's certainly provided. As you should, yes. Yeah, so um, it's just, it's, it's interesting some of the stresses that a 25-year-old in the United States ha might have. I'm sure there are similarities, you know, with an Australian 25-year-old, but then you remember that actually there are some really stark differences. And again, it all comes down to that the, the system, the policy, the laws, the people mm -hmm. that created, um, you know, the intricacies that allow it to be that way. Um, mm -hmm. We've got a question here from James. James Wright, who, <laughs> good on you, James. First name, last name. Um, <laughs> yes, stand up, be counted, James. <laughs> James asks, um, I love this question, it's, it's a great one. What book on the shelf behind you rests on your heart? James. Ooh. I Love wish you could see. I would do a little show and tell. Um, let's see. Oh, that's such a good question. Okay. One of my favorites that I think about often is Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. It's beautiful. It's really heartbreaking. Wonderful characters. Probably that one is that one's really, really tugged in my heart. Um, another one that I read recently, okay, this is where I got to it. Basically, my, my grandmother passed away two years ago, and I knew that she was very poor growing up, but at her funeral, I talked to her sister, and her sister told me that when they were younger, that they built a natatorium, a big public pool in their neighborhood, so that they knew that they could, you know, shower at least two days a week when it was open on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so I got very interested in, in pools and, and segregation and, and why community pools exist and the culture around them. And so I have a book on my shelf called Contested Waters by Jeff Zilka, and it's all about community and culture around public pools, which sounds boring, but it's not, I promise. Beautiful. Well, that's the perfect answer. We just want to know what makes your heart move and what books do yeah. that for you. So that's perfect. Um, another question here from Anonymous. I like this one. I don't know if you're going to like this one, Kylie, but I really like this okay, one. Okay, I'm ready. Because it's so spicy and I just also want to know. <laughs> um, if you had to choose one, whose behaviour out of Kelly or Alex 
do you think is the worst? Mmm, behavior is the worst. Okay, I'm going to say that... Oh, yes, is that what I want to say? Okay, yes. I always have to go back to who has the most power, and I think Alex has the most power. Mm-hmm. And so when you abuse power, that's pretty bad behavior. Yeah, bad employer power and power abusion is, is bad. So I would say that one. Kelly is just kind of... He just, you know, he's Kelly. <laughs> yeah. Also, look, I mean, I've got a lot of opinions about Alex, which we don't have time for in this moment. Um, but it's, that's, that's the thing about your book is that it just, you, you're not sure which characters are the worst, which characters are the best, which characters you like, because they have some redeeming qualities, but then they have, they do and say these other things that are just, you know, just don't feel right or sit right. So... Oh, here's another spicy question. Oh, who wrote this? Anonymous. Anonymous, of course, yep. Anonymous, of course. The good question, though. Is Kamala Harris a Tamra? Oh, <laughs> what a great question. Such a great okay, question. I mean, that is a great question. And, and there's, um, there's an addendum have, to that question. I'll just, I'll, so I'll just make sure I ask the whole thing. So is yeah. Kamala Harris a Tamra? How do we celebrate her breaking glass ceilings but ensure that she is supporting the many and not the few? Anonymous shout out. Good question. Okay, first of all, I want to say that's like one of the best questions I've been asked since I've been on Bookstore. That was amazing. And also, I literally have... Round of applause for Anonymous, please. <laughs> Do you want to show yourself now that yeah, we're clapping for you? That's pretty good. It's pretty good. The connection there is really, really great. Um, I have no idea. I've never sat next to Kamala at, at Thanksgiving. I don't know what that feels like. Um, her, you know, am I, am, I, am I super excited that what I feel like happened is, you know, uh, for a black woman to break these glass ceilings in this really impressive way, it's a, literally a prosecutor coming up, a cop coming in. It's a very strange year, and almost makes this weird perfect fiction sense that in this year where, where we see the abuse of power that, that cops have, that's who becomes vice president. It's crazy. Um, and so I don't know how she is in person, um, and, I, and I wish I knew how to push her towards, you know, believing, you know, that people shouldn't serve acute sentences for having a little bag of marijuana. I don't know how to do that, um, but I don't know if she's a camera, and I'm going to immediately tell my husband that question when we get done, because that was really, really great. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> <That was> great. <laughs> thanks for the answer, and thanks for the question, Anonymous. Another one also from, They're all from Anonymous. Um, this one, does it get exhausting to be asked about how to solve racism? I mean, I, I don't know how to do it, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, I, if I knew, I would just, like, do it, but I don't know how, um, you know. And so I think that that's, I think that's what we were talking about, Dan, but, you know, I think a lot of artists get asked questions like that. But here's the thing. I love asking artists what they think about big issues as mm. well because I like seeing their perspective on the world, and, and I think that that's what a lot of novels can do. It's funny, though, because people will, will say to artists, like, oh, well, you must be an expert on race and you must be an expert on, on, you know, domestic workers. And for an artist, I think it's, you know, actually 
this is the first, this book is the first exploration of that. It just means I'm interested. And this is like the fruit of that. And so I'm here to learn with all of you. Um, I, I'm really good at pointing out problems, but I'm not so good at knowing how to solve them, not just with race. Yeah, that's okay. I don't think we need an answer from you like right now about how to solve racism. I think I don't think anybody's expecting to walk away from this talk going, well, we've done it. We've solved. Yeah, great. We solved so, uh, give, me, give me an hour. I'll get something together. So, yeah, don't yeah. worry. Yeah. Come back to me in an hour. Some job points. Um, right. Oh, here's a, a question about the online space. This is an interesting question. Does the focus on online debate in regard to race, does it exclude lots of people on the wrong side of the digital divide? Which, which I guess um, I'm, I'm just um, inferring here from the question that perhaps does it include people who might not be as engaged on these platforms as other people? I'm thinking of Twitter in particular, which not a lot of... Uh, percentage of the population is on and really it's just right. I, I, I don't think that the internet does include that side at all I think that the percentage is like maybe 30 people are are 30 percent of people are actually on Twitter yeah and I think way less than that are engaged and then all of the tweets that you're seeing I think are from like four or five percent of, of people who use it and so no you're definitely not getting you know, a pro, like the proper answer of, of how people are actually thinking. And then every election, when we start seeing the results roll in, people say, oh, this is so shocking. It's like, yeah, because you're only on Twitter looking at the same 10 people post, and that's what you think the world looks like. And so, yes, I do think that on one end, the Internet gives you, you know, access to a lot of different people you wouldn't have before, but it's not showing you, you know, a poll of how everyone is thinking around you, for sure. I think it's just very misleading. Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I don't think we've seen the full extent of how the internet distorts conversation. I think really we're just in the very fledgling years of using it. Hasn't It's been around for 10 years, which, you know, uh, no, it's been around for a lot longer. I'm thinking, you know, Twitter and Facebook and social media has, you know, predominantly really taken off in the last decade. So just watch this space. Um, exactly. Now the question, which of your characters did you find the trickiest and the hardest to get right and why? Ooh, uh, you know, some characters will really just present themselves to you very, very clearly. And Amira did that. Amira was Amira from the very beginning, and it was just getting to know her rather than shaping her. I'm making sure that you guys can hear me as well. Yes? Yes, yes. Okay, perfect. Just making sure. Um, Alex took longer. There are certain characters where you end up changing their name about 10 times. And I think I changed Alex's name about 10 times. And then you have to, like, grieve, and then you feel like, oh, did I kill? I don't know like, who this person is. It was kind of figuring out who Alex was, you know, in comparison to where Amira was in her life. So Alex was very, very difficult. And also just shaping, you know, her backstory to not just be, oh, here's this rich girl and that's it. I wanted her to have depth and I wanted her to have issues of her own to solve. And so I think Alex is probably the hardest character to shape, not just making her, you know, this very, you know, two-dimensional Instagram person, but this person who's really savvy and if she had hit Amir at a different part in her life, maybe they could have gotten a lot. I always wanted that maybe to be in there. Yeah. Okay, Alex. Um, how have you found navigating, this is from Amy, hello Amy, how have you found navigating the literature publishing industry as a woman of colour and how can this industry support people of colour uh, uh, authors better? 
That's a great question. Uh, I got an interesting take. So when I sold my book, I was I was very happy to have many agents and editors who were interested in what happens then is you basically have a phone call. It's like you're dating. It's very strange. And, and they tell you what they like, what they didn't like, and, and go from there. And so it was very interesting to hear many agents and editors, not the ones I chose, say to me, you know, how can we make this a little bit more urban and black? Or some would say, this is a little too black for me. Like, you don't want to do this with their voices. And and so it's a really hard line because I think that editing and feedback is such a huge process. And I want someone to tell me what's working and what's not working. Mm. And that really just comes into trusting your gut and saying, okay, well, this, I see these black women dancing and partying in this scene, and I see them negotiating for a job in this scene, and I think that that's who they are in both of those scenes, and they should be able to exist in both of those spaces. And so I was very pleased that my agent editor understood the spirit of this novel from the very beginning, but also wanted me to make it as, as great as I could. And as far as the publishing industry in general, you know, I think that a lot of people say it's so wonderful that you know, so many more black things are being published, I'm not sure if that's true when you really look at the numbers, when you look at the numbers on the bestsellers list and, and all the other many, many lists. I feel that the marketing is changing for a lot of black authors, mm. but I'm not sure if the actual numbers of black authors getting the same attention is, is happening. And just even the way that, you know, black art, you know, if there's like a, if there's a, a book about a white family, it's a big picture drama. And if there's a book about a black family, it's African-American lit in the tiny little section. And so I'm not really sure how to change, you know, bookstores in general and marketing in general, but do I think that, you know, black authors are, are getting the same opportunities all the time? I, I think the numbers say no. So I, I hope that those numbers are become different um, and that marketing, you know, ramps up into actual reality. But do I think we're there right now? Not yet. Yeah. Look, I'm not adverse to a little bit of rever reverse racial nepotism. You know, getting in like, <laughs> getting into an industry as a woman of colour and then just keeping an eye out for other women of colour as well. So maybe you, you are one of the first to get in there, you're not the last to get in there, and then that person looks out for the person after them and the person after them. And that's a, mm -hmm. you know, that's not a something that you can click your fingers and have happen. That's a very kind of overtime right. um, generational thing. But... Um, Which is funny, funny you say that because when we were selling the book, I make sure to tell my, my agent I really want to make sure that we're submitting to black editors, even though there are so few. And so one that we found that we I was really excited about, she read the book and she was like, nah, I'm good. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like that's fair. That's, you didn't connect with it, that's fine. I just wanted, just wanted to see. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. That, that's great. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, sadly, we've run out of time for questions and run out of time for this chat. Um, a massive thank you from all of us here in Australia, in Sydney, um, for being here. Please give Kylie a round of applause. Thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, thank you. And like, you know, a, a really massive thank you to all of you guys here. I know it's not the same as what it was BC before COVID. I know today has been a really hot day, but we're all here together and it's actually been really lovely seeing all of your faces in real life. So thank you to you for being here. Thank you to you for watching at home. I know you're still there. I can see you. Thank you um, to everyone that's taken part in this conversation. Um, and have a great day. Let's end with a round of applause for ourselves.